0: The Maternal Feminine by Edna Ferber. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Maternal Feminine by Edna Ferber. Called upon to describe Aunt Sophie, you would have to coin a term or fall back on the dictionary definition of a spinster. An unmarried woman, states that worthy work baldly, especially when no longer young that to the world was sophie decker unmarried certainly and most certainly no longer young in figure she was at fifty what is known in the corset ads as a stylish stout well dressed in dark suits with broad-toed health shoes and a small astute hat the suit was practical common sense the health shoes were comfort the hat was strictly business Sophie Decker made and sold hats, both astute and ingenuous, to the female population of Chippewa, Wisconsin. Chippewa's East End set bought the knowing type of hat, and the mill hands and hired girls bought the naive ones. But whether lumpy or possessed of that thing known as line, Sophie Decker's hats were honest hats the world is full of aunt Sophie's unsung plump ruddy capable women of middle age unwed and rather looked down upon by a family of married sisters and tolerant good-humoured brothers-in-law and careless nieces and nephews poor aunt soph with a significant half-smile and she's had so little in life really She was undoubtedly a good old thing, Aunt Soph, forever sending a model hat to this pert little niece in Seattle or taking Adele, Sister Flora's daughter, to Chicago or New York as a treat on one of her buying trips, burdening herself on her business visits to these cities with a dozen foolish shopping commissions for the idle womenfolk of her family, hearing without partisanship her sister's complaints about their husbands and her sister's husband's complaints about their wives. It was all the same. I'm telling you this, Sophie, I wouldn't breathe it to another living soul, but I honestly think sometimes that if it weren't for the children there's no knowing why they confided these things to Sophie instead of to each other these wedded sisters of hers perhaps they held for each other an unuttered distrust or jealousy perhaps in making a confidant of Sophie, there was something of the satisfaction that comes of dropping a surreptitious stone down a deep well and hearing it plunk safe in the knowledge that it has struck no one and that it cannot rebound lying there in the soft darkness Sometimes they would end by saying, but you don't know what it is, Sophie, you can't. I'm sure I don't know why I'm telling you all this. But when Sophie answered sagely, I know, I know, they paid little heed, once having unburdened themselves. The curious part of it is that she did know. She knew as a woman of 50 must know who all her life has given and given and in return has received nothing. Sophie Decker had never used the word inhibition in her life she may not have known what it meant she only knew without in the least knowing she knew that in giving of her goods of her affections of her time of her energy she found a certain relief her own people would have been shocked if you had told them that there was about this old maid aunt something rather splendidly rebelleian without being what is known as a masculine woman she had somehow acquired the man's viewpoint his shrewd value sense she ate a good deal and enjoyed her food she did not care for those queer little stories that married women sometimes tell with narrowed eyes but she was strangely tolerant of what is known as sin so simple and direct she was that you wondered how she prospered in a line so subtle as the millinery business You might have got a fairly true characterization of Sophie Decker from one of 50 people. From a salesman in a New York or Chicago wholesale millinery house. From Otis Cohen, cashier of the First National Bank of Chippewa. From Julia Gold, her head milliner and trimmer. From almost anyone, in fact, except a member of her own family. They knew her least of all her three married sisters grace in seattle ella in chicago and flora in chippewa regarded her with a rather affectionate disapproval from the snug safety of their own conjugal nooks. i don't know there's something well common about sophie flora confided to ella flora on shopping bent and sophie seeking hats had made the five-hour run from chippewa to chicago together she talks to everybody. You should have heard her with the porter on our train. Chums! And when the conductor took our tickets, it was a social occasion. You know how packed the 752 is. Every seat in the parlor car taken. And Sophie, asking the colored porter about how his wife was getting along, she called him William. And if they were going to send her west. And all about her. I wish she wouldn't. And Sophie undeniably had a habit of regarding people as human beings. You found her talking to chambermaids and delivery boys. And el elevator starters and gas collectors and hotel clerks all that aloof unapproachable superior crew under her benign volubility they bloomed and spread and took on colour as do those tight little paper-water flowers when you cast them into a bowl it was an idle curiosity in her she was interested you found yourself confiding to her your innermost longings your secret tribulations under the encouragement of her sympathetic you don't say perhaps it was as well that sister flora was in ignorance of the fact that the millinery salesmen at danowitz and danowitz importers always called miss decker aunt soph as with one arm flung about her plump shoulder they revealed to her the picture of their girl in the back flap of the billfold flora with a firm grip on chippewa society as represented by the east end set did not find her position enhanced by a sister in the millinery business in elm street of course it's wonderful that she's self-supporting and successful and all she told her husband but it's not so pleasant for Dell now that she's growing up having all the girls she knows buying their hats of her aunt not that i-but you know how it is h charnsworth baldwin said yes he knew when the decker girls were young the deckers had lived in a sagging old frame house from which the original paint had long ago peeled in great scrofulous patches on an unimportant street in chippewa there was a worm-eaten russet apple tree in the yard an untidy tangle of wild cucumber vine over the front porch and an uncut brush of sunburned grass and weeds all about From May until September, you never pass the Decker place without hearing the plunkety-plink of a mandolin from somewhere behind the vines, laughter, and the creak-creak of the hard-worked and protesting hammock-hooks flora ella and grace decker had had more bows and fewer clothes than any other girl in chippewa in a town full of pretty young things they were undoubtedly the prettiest and in a family of pretty sisters Sophie always accepted. flora was the acknowledged beauty she was the kind of girl whose nose never turns red on a frosty morning a little white exquisite nose purest example of the degree of perfection which may be attained by the vulgarest of features under her great grey eyes were faint violet shadows which gave her a look of almost poignant wistfulness her slow sweet smile gave the beholder an actual physical pang only her family knew she was lazy as a behemoth, untidy about her person, and as sentimental as a hungry shark. The strange and cruel part of it was that, in some grotesque exaggerated way, as a cartoon may be like a photograph, Sophie resembled a floor. It was as though nature in prankish mood had given a cabbage the color and texture of a rose, with none of its fragile reticence and grace it was a manless household mrs decker vague garrulous referred to her dead husband in frequent reminiscence as poor mr decker mrs decker dragged one leg as she walked rheumatism or spinal infection small wonder then that sophy the plain with a gift for hat-making a knack at eggless cake-baking and a genius for turning a sleeve so that last year's style met this year's without a struggle contributed nothing to the sag in the centre of the old twine hammock on the front porch that the three girls should marry well and Sophie not at all was as inevitable as the sequence of the seasons ella and grace did not manage badly considering that they had only their girlish prettiness and the twine hammock to work with but flora with her beauty captured h charnsworth baldwin chippewa gasped h charnsworth baldwin drove a skittish mare to a high-wheeled yellow runabout had his clothes made at proctor brothers in milwaukee and talked about a game called golf it was he who advocated laying out a section of land for what he called links and erecting a clubhouse thereon the section of the bluff overlooking the river he explained is full of natural hazards besides having a really fine view chippewa or that comfortable middle-class section of it which got its exercise walking home to dinner from the store at noon and cutting the grass evenings after supper laughed as it read the interview in the chippewa eagle a golf course they repeated to one another grinning Conklin's cow pasture up the river. It's full of natural. Wait a minute. What was? Oh, yeah, here it is. Hazards full of natural hazards. Say, couldn't you die? for h chonsworth baldwin had been little henry baldwin before he went east to college ten years later h chonsworth in knickerbockers and gay-topped stockings was winning the cup in the men's tournament played on the chippewa golf club course overlooking the river and his name in stout gold letters blinked at you from the plate-glass windows of the office at the corner of elm and winnebago northern lumber and land company h Charnsworth baldwin president two blocks farther down elm street was another sign not so glittering which read miss sophie decker millinery sophie's hat-making in the beginning had been done at home she had always made her sisters hats and her own of course and an occasional hat for a girl after her sisters had married sophie found herself in possession of a rather bewildering amount of spare time the hat trade grew so that sometimes there were six rather botchy little bonnets all done up in yellow paper pyramids with a pin at the top awaiting their future wearers after her mother's death, Sophie still stayed on in the old house. She took a course in Millinery in Milwaukee, came home, stuck up a homemade sign in the parlor window, the untidy cucumber vines came down, and began her hat making in earnest. In five years she had opened a shop on a side street near Elm, had painted the old house, installed new plumbing, built a warty stucco porch, and transformed the weedy grass-tangled yard into an orderly stretch of green lawn and bright flower-beds. In ten years she was in Elm Street, and the Chippewa Eagle ran a half-column twice a year describing her spring and fall openings. On these occasions Aunt Sophie, in black satin and moss wave and her most relentless corsets, was, in all the superficial things, not a pleat or fold or line or wave behind her city colleagues. She had all the catchphrases this is awfully good this year here's a sweet thing a mornette model well but my dear it's the style the line you're paying for not the material no that hat doesn't do a thing for you i've got it i had you in mind when i bought it now don't say you can't wear hannah wait till you see it on When she stood behind you as you sat, uncrowned and expectant before the mirror, she would poise the hat four inches above your head, holding it in the tips of her fingers, a precious, fragile thing. Your fascinated eyes were held by it, and your breath as well. Then down it descended, slowly, slowly, a quick pressure, her fingers firm against your temples, a little sigh of relieved suspense that's wonderful on you you don't oh my dear but that's because you're not used to it you know how you said for years you had to have a brim and couldn't possibly wear a turban with your nose until i proved to you that if the head size was only big well perhaps this needs just a little lift here just a snip there that does it and that did it not that Sophie decker ever tried to sell you a hat against your judgment taste, or will she was too wise a psychologist and too shrewd a business woman for that she preferred that you go out of her shop hatless rather than with an unbecoming hat but whether you bought or not you took with you out of Sophie decker's shop something more precious than any hat-box ever contained just to hear her admonishing a customer her good-natured face all aglow my dear always put on your hat before you get into your dress i do you can get your arms above your head and set it right i put on my hat and veil as soon as i get my hair combed in your mind's eye you saw her a stout well-stayed figure in tight brassier and scant slip bare-armed and bare-bosomed in smart hat and veil attired as though for the street from the neck up and for the bedroom from the shoulders down the East End set bought Sophie Decker's hats because they were modish and expensive hats, but she managed miraculously to gain a large and lucrative following among the paper mill girls and factory hands as well. You would have thought that any attempt to hold both these opposites would cause her to lose one or the other, and Sophie said frankly that of the two, she would have preferred to lose her smart trade the mill girls come in with the money in their hands you might say they get good wages and they want to spend them i wouldn't try to sell them one of those little plain model hats they wouldn't understand them or like them and if i told them the price they'd think i was trying to cheat them they want a hat with something good and solid on it their fathers wouldn't prefer caviar to pork roast would they it's the same idea her shop windows reflected her business acumen one was chastely severely elegant holding a single hat poised on a slender stick in the other were a dozen honest arrangements of velvet and satin and plumes at the spring opening she always displayed one of those little toques completely covered with violets that violet-covered toque was a symbol I don't expect him to buy it," Sophie Decker explained. "But everybody feels there should be a hat like that at a spring opening. It's like a fruit centerpiece at a family dinner. Nobody ever eats it, but it has to be there. The two Baldwin children, Adele and Eugene, found Aunt Sophie's shop a treasure trove. Adele, during her doll days, possessed such boxes of satin and velvet scraps and bits of lace and ribbon and jet as to make her the envy of all her playmates. She used to crawl about the floor of the shop workroom and under the table and chairs like a little scavenger. What in the world do you do with all that truck, child? asked Aunt Sophie. You must have barrels of it. Adele stuffed another wisp of tulle into the pocket of her pinafore. I keep it, she said. When she was ten, Adele had said to her mother, Why do you always say poor Sophie? Because Aunt Sophie's had so little in life. She never has married and has always worked adele considered that if you don't get married do they say you're poor well yes then i'll get married announced adele a small dark eerie child skinny and rather foreign-looking the boy eugene had the beauty which should have been the girls very tall very blonde, with the straight nose and wistful eyes of the flora of twenty years ago if only adele could have had his looks his mother used to say they're wasted on a man he doesn't need them but a girl does adele will have to be well dressed and interesting and that's such hard work Flora said she worshipped her children, and she actually sometimes still coquetted heavily with her husband. At twenty she had been addicted to baby talk when endeavoring to coax something out of someone. Her admirers had found it irresistible. At forty it was awful. Her selfishness was colossal. She affected a semi invalidism and for fifteen years had spent one day a week in bed she took no exercise and a great deal of soda bicarbonate and tried to fight her fat with baths fifteen or twenty years had worked a startling change in the two sisters flora the beautiful and sophie the plain it was more than a mere physical change it was a spiritual thing though neither knew nor marked it each had taken on weight the one solidly comfortably the other flabbily unhealthily With the encroaching fat, Flora's small delicate features seemed, somehow, to disappear in her face so that you saw it as a large white surface bearing indentations ridges and hollows like one of those enlarged photographs of the moon's surface as seen through a telescope a self-centered face and misleadingly placid and sophie's large plain features plumply padded now impressed you as indicating strength courage and a great human understanding from her husband and her children, Flora exacted service that would have chafed a galley slave into rebellion she loved to lie in bed in an orchid bed-jacket with ribbons and be read to by adele or eugene or her husband they all hated it she just wants to be waited on and petted and admired adele had stormed one day in open rebellion to her aunt sophie she uses it as an excuse for everything and has ever since jean and i were children she's as strong as an ox not a daughterly speech but true years before a generous but misguided woman friend coming in to call had been ushered in to where mrs baldwin lay propped up in a nest of pillows well i don't blame you the caller had gushed if i looked the way you do in bed i'd stay there forever don't tell me you're sick with all that lovely color flora baldwin had rolled her eyes ceilingward nobody ever gives me credit for all my suffering and ill health and just because all my blood is in my cheeks Flora was ambitious, socially, but too lazy to make the effort necessary for success in that direction i love my family she would say they fill my life after all that's a profession in itself being a wife and mother she showed her devotion by taking no interest whatever in her husband's land schemes by forbidding eugene to play football at school for fear he might be injured by impressing adele with the necessity for vivacity and modishness because of what she called her unfortunate lack of beauty i don't understand it she used to say in the child's presence her father's handsome enough goodness knows and i wasn't such a fright when i was a girl and look at her little dark skinny thing The boy Eugene grew up a very silent, handsome, shy young fellow, the girl dark, voluble, and rather interesting. The husband, more and more immersed in his business, was absent from home for long periods, irritable after some of these homecomings, boisterously high-spirited following other trips, now growling about household expenses and unpaid bills, now urging the purchase of some almost prohibitive luxury. Anyone but a nagging, self-absorbed, and vain woman such as flora would have marked these unmistakable signs but flora was a taker not a giver she thought herself affectionate because she craved affection unduly she thought herself a fond mother because she insisted on having her children with her under her thumb marking their devotion as a prisoner marks time with his feet stupidly shufflingly advancing not a step sometimes sophie the clear-eyed seeing this state of affairs tried to stop it you expect too much of your husband and children she said one day bluntly to her sister i flora's dimpled hand had flown to her breast like a wounded thing i you're crazy there isn't a more devoted wife and mother in the world that's the trouble i love them too much well then grimly stop it for a change that's half eugene's nervousness you're fussing over him he's eighteen give him a chance you're weakening him and stop dinning that society stuff into adele's ears she's got brains that child why just yesterday in the workroom she got hold of some satin and a shape and turned out a little turban that angie hatton do you mean to tell me that angie hatton saw my adele working in your shop now look here sophie you're earning your living and it's to your credit you're my sister but i won't have adele associated in the minds of my friends with your hat store understand i won't have it that isn't what i sent her away to an expensive school for to have her come back and sit around in a millinery workshop with a lot of little cheap shoddy sewing girls now understand i won't have it you don't know what it is to be a mother you don't know what it is to have suffered if you had brought two children into the world So then it had come about during the years between their childhood and their youth that Aunt Sophie received the burden of their confidences, their griefs, their perplexities. She seemed somehow to understand in some miraculous way and to make the burden a welcome one. Well, now you tell Aunt Sophie all about it. Stop crying, Della. How can I hear when you're crying? That's my baby. Now then this when they were children but with the years the habit clung and became fixed there was something about aunt Sophie's house the old frame house with the warty stucco porch for that matter there was something about the very shop downtown with its workroom in the rear that had a cosy homelike quality never possessed by the big baldwin house h charnsworth baldwin had built a large brick mansion in the Tudor style on a bluff overlooking the fox river in the best residential section of chippewa it was expensively furnished the hall consul alone was enough to strike a preliminary chill to your heart the millinery workroom winter days was always bright and warm and snug the air was a little close perhaps and heavy but with a not unpleasant smell of dyes and stuffs and velvet and glue and steam and flat iron and a certain racy scent that julia gold the head trimmer always used there was a sociable cat white with a dark grey patch on his throat and a swipe of it across one flank that spoiled him for style and beauty but made him a comfortable-looking cat to have around sometimes on very cold days or in the rush season the girls would not go home to dinner but would bring their lunches and cook coffee over a little gas heater in the corner julia gold especially drank quantities of coffee aunt Sophie had hired her from chicago she had been with her for five years she said julia was the best trimmer she had ever had aunt Sophie often took her to new york or chicago on her buying trips julia had not much genius for original design or she never would have been content to be head milliner in a small-town shop But she could copy a $50 model from memory down to the last detail of crown and brim. It was a gift that made her invaluable the boy eugene used to like to look at julia gold her hair was very black and her face was very white and her eyebrows met in a thick dark line her face as she bent over her work was sullen and brooding but when she lifted her head suddenly in conversation you were startled by a vivid flash of teeth and eyes and smile her voice was deep and low she made you a little uncomfortable her eyes seemed always to be asking something around the work-table mornings she used to relate the dreams she had had the night before in these dreams she was always being pursued by a lover and then i woke up screaming neither she nor the sewing-girls knew what she was revealing in these confidences of hers but aunt sophy the shrewd somehow sensed it you're alone too much evenings that's what comes of living in a boarding-house you come over to me for a week the change will do you good and it'll be nice for me too having somebody to keep me company julia often came for a week or ten days at a time julia about the house after supper was given to those vivid splashy negligees with big flower patterns strewn over them they made her hair look blacker and her skin whiter by contrast sometimes eugene or adele or both would drop in and the four would play bridge aunt sophie played a shrewd and canny game adele a rather brilliant one julia a wild and disastrous hand always and eugene so badly that only julia would take him on as a partner mrs baldwin never knew about these evenings it was on one of these occasions that aunt Sophie, coming unexpectedly into the living-room from the kitchen where she and adele were foraging for refreshments after the game beheld julia gold and eugene arms clasped about each other cheek to cheek they started up as she came in and faced her the woman defiantly the boy bravely julia gold was thirty with reservations at that time and the boy not quite twenty-one how long said aunt sophy quietly she had a mayonnaise spoon and a leaf of lettuce in her hand then and still she did not look comic i'm crazy about her said eugene we're crazy about each other we're going to be married aunt Sophie listened for the reassuring sound of adele's spoons and plates in the kitchen she came forward now listen she began i love him said julia gold dramatically i love him except that it was very white and somehow old-looking aunt sophie's face was as benign as always now look here julia my girl that isn't love and you know it i'm an old maid but i know what love is when i see it i'm ashamed of you julia sensible woman like you hugging and kissing a boy like that and old enough to be his mother now look here aunt sophie if you're going to talk that way why she's wonderful she's taught me what it means to really oh my land aunt sophie sat down looking suddenly very ill and then from the kitchen adele's clear young voice hey what's the idea i'm not going to do all the work where's everybody aunt Sophie started up again she came up to them and put a hand a capable firm steadying hand on the arm of each the woman drew back but the boy did not will you promise me not to do anything for a week just a week will you promise me will you are you going to tell father not for a week if you'll promise not to see each other in that week no i don't want to send you away julia i don't want to you're not a bad girl it's just he's never had at home they never gave him a chance just a week julia just a week eugene we can talk things over then adele's footsteps coming from the kitchen quick i promise said eugene julia said nothing well really said adele from the doorway you're a nervy lot sitting around while i slave in the kitchen jean see if you can open the olives with this fool can opener i tried there is no knowing what she expected to do in that week aunt Sophie, what miracles she meant to perform she had no plan in mind just hope she looked strangely shrunken and old suddenly but when three days later the news came that america was going into war she had her answer flora was beside herself eugene won't have to go he isn't old enough thank god and by the time he is it will be over surely she was almost hysterical eugene was in the room aunt sophie looked at him and he looked at aunt sophie in her eyes was a question in his was the answer they said nothing the next day eugene enlisted in three days he was gone flora took to her bed next day adele a faint unwonted color marking her cheeks walked into her mother's bedroom and stood at the side of the recumbent figure her father his hands clasped behind him was pacing up and down now and then kicking a cushion that had fallen to the floor he was chewing a dead cigar one side of his face twisted curiously over the cylinder in his mouth so that he had a sinister and crafty look charnsworth won't you please stop ramping up and down like that my nerves are killing me i can't help it if the war has done something or other to your business i'm sure no wife could have been more economical than i have nothing matters but eugene anyway how could he do such a thing i've given my whole life to my children h charnsworth kicked the cushion again so that it struck the wall at the opposite side of the room flora drew her breath in between her teeth as though a knife had entered her heart adele stood at the side of the bed looking at her mother her hands were clasped behind her too in that moment as she stood there she resembled her mother and her father so startlingly and simultaneously that the two had they been less absorbed in their own affairs must have remarked it the girl's head came up stiffly listen i'm going to marry daniel oakley daniel oakley was fifty and a friend of her father's for years he had been coming to the house and for years she had ridiculed him she and eugene had called him sturdy oak because he was always talking about his strength and endurance his walks his rugged health pounding his chest meanwhile and planting his feet far apart he and baldwin had had business relations as well as friendly ones at this announcement flora screamed and sat up in bed h charnsworth stopped short in his pacing and regarded his daughter with a queer look a concentrated look as though what she had said had set in motion a whole mass of mental machinery within his brain when did he ask you he's asked me a dozen times but it's different now all the men will be going to war there won't be any left look at england and france i'm not going to be left she turned squarely toward her father her young face set and hard you know what i mean you know what i mean flora sitting up in bed was sobbing i think you might have told your mother adele what are children coming to you stand there and say i'm going to marry daniel oakley oh i am so faint all of a sudden get the spirits of ammonia adele turned and walked out of the room She was married six weeks later. They had a regular pre-war wedding, veil, flowers, dinner, and all. Aunt Sophie arranged the folds of her gown and draped her veil. The girl stood looking at herself in the mirror, a curious half-smile twisting her lips. She seemed slighter and darker than ever. In all this white in my veil, I look just like a fly in a quart of milk, she said with a laugh then suddenly she turned to her aunt who stood behind her and clung to her holding her tight i can't she gasped i can't i can't aunt Sophie held her off and looked at her her eyes searching the girl what do you mean della are you just nervous or do you mean you don't want to marry him do you mean that then what are you marrying him for tell me tell your aunt Sophie but adele was straightening herself and pulling out the crushed folds of her veil to pay the mortgage on the old homestead of course just like the girl in the place she laughed a little but aunt Sophie did not now look here della if you're but there was a knock at the door adele caught up her flowers it's all right she said aunt Sophie stood with her back against the door if it's money she said it is isn't it i've got money saved it was for you children i've always been afraid i knew he was sailing pretty close with his speculations and all since the war he can have it he can have it all it isn't too late adele della my baby don't aunt sophy it wouldn't be enough anyway daniel has been wonderful really dad's been stealing money for years dan's don't look like that i'd have hated being poor anyway never could have got used to it it is ridiculous though isn't it like something in the movies i don't mind i'm lucky really when you come to think of it a plain little black thing like me but your mother mother doesn't know a thing flora wept mistily all through the ceremony but adele was composed enough for two when scarcely a month later baldwin came to Sophie decker his face drawn and queer Sophie knew how much she said thirty thousand will cover it if you've got more than that i thought oakley uh, adele said he did but he won't any more and this thing's got to be met it's this damned war that's done it i'd have been all right people got scared they wanted the money they wanted it in cash speculating with it were you oh well a woman doesn't understand these business deals no naturally said aunt sophie a butterfly like me sophie for god's sake don't joke now i tell you this will cover it and everything will be all right if i had anybody else to go to for the money i wouldn't ask you but you'll get it back you know that aunt sophie got up heavily and went over to her desk it was for the children anyway they won't need it now he looked up at that something in her voice who won't why won't they i don't know what made me say that i had a dream eugene yes oh well we're all nervous flora has dreams every night and presentiments every fifteen minutes now look here sophie about this money you'll never know how grateful i am flora doesn't understand these things but i can talk to you it's i might as well be honest about it sophie interrupted i'm doing it not for you but for flora and della and eugene flora has lived such a sheltered life i sometimes wonder if she really knew any of you her husband or her children i sometimes have the feeling that della and eugene are my children were my children when he came home that night baldwin told his wife that old soph was getting queer she talks about the children being hers he said oh well she's awfully fond of them flora explained and she's lived a little narrow life with nothing to bother her but her hats and her house she doesn't know what it means to suffer as a mother suffers poor Sophie. Hmm. baldwin grunted when the official notification of eugene's death came from the war department aunt sophie was so calm it might have appeared that flora had been right she took to her bed now in earnest did flora sophie neglected everything to give comfort to the stricken two how can you sit there like that flora would rail how can you sit there like that even if you weren't his mother surely you must feel something it's the way he died that comforts me said aunt sophie what difference does that make american red cross Croix rouge american my dear mrs baldwin i am sure you must have been officially notified by the u s war department of the death of your son lieutenant eugene h baldwin but i want to write you what i can of his last hours i was with him much of that time as his nurse i am sure it must mean much to a mother to hear from a woman who was privileged to be with her boy at the last your son was brought to our hospital one night badly gassed from the fighting in the argonne forest ordinarily we do not receive gassed patients as they are sent to a special hospital near here but two nights before the germans wrecked that hospital so many gassed patients have come to us your son was put in the officers ward where the doctors who examined him told me there was absolutely no hope for him as he had inhaled so much gas that it was only a matter of a few hours i could scarcely believe that a man so big and strong as he was could not pull through the first bad attack he had losing his breath and nearly choking rather frightened him although the doctor and i were both with him he held my hand tightly in his begging me not to leave him and repeating over and over that it was good to have a woman near He was propped high in bed and put his head on my shoulder, while I fanned him until he breathed more easily. I stayed with him all that night, though I was not on duty. You see his eyes also were badly burned, but before he died he was able to see very well. I stayed with him every minute of that night, and have never seen a finer character than he showed during all that fight for life." He had several bad attacks that night, and came through each one, simply because of his great willpower and fighting spirit. After each attack, he would grip my hand and say, "'Well, we made it that time, didn't we, nurse?' Toward the morning, he asked me if he was going to die. I could not tell him the truth. He needed all his strength. I told him he had one chance in a thousand. He seemed to become very strong then, and sitting bolt upright in bed, he said, "'Then I'll fight for it.' we kept him alive for three days and actually thought we had won when on the third day but even in your sorrow you must be very proud to have been the mother of such a son i am a wisconsin girl madison when this is over and i come home will you let me see you so that i may tell you more than i can possibly write marion king it was in march six months later that marion king came they had hoped for it but never expected it and she came four people were waiting in the living room of the big baldwin house overlooking the river flora and her husband adele and aunt sophie they sat waiting now and then adele would rise nervously and go to the window that faced the street flora was weeping with audible sniffs baldwin sat in his chair frowning a little a dead cigar in one corner of his mouth only aunt Sophie sat quietly waiting there was little conversation none in the last five minutes flora broke the silence dabbing her face with her handkerchief as she spoke Sophie, how can you sit there like that not that i don't envy you i do i remember i used to feel sorry for you i used to say poor Sophie, but you unmarried ones are the happiest after all it's the married woman who drinks the cup to the last bitter drop there you sit Sophie, fifty years old "'and life hasn't even touched you. "'You don't know how cruel life can be to a mother.' "'Suddenly—' "'There!' said Adele. "'The other three in the room stood up and faced the door. "'The sound of a motor stopping outside. "'Daniel Oakley's hearty voice. "'Well, it only took us five minutes from the station. "'Pretty good.' "'Footsteps down the hall. Marion King stood in the doorway. "'They faced her, the four, Baldwin and Adele and Flora and Sophie.' marion king stood for a moment uncertainly her eyes upon them she looked at the two older women with swift appraising glances then she came into the room quickly and put her two hands on soph's shoulders and looked into her eyes straight and sure you must be a very proud woman she said you ought to be a very proud woman end of the maternal feminine by Edna Ferber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.